I want to tell you an old story. It's about a group of businessmen who were flying on an aircraft when uh, there was a sudden decompression. And the oxygen mass fell from the ceiling. The plane was, began this kind of hurling screen toward the ground. And one of the men lifted off his oxygen, ma oxygen mask for a moment, and he shouted across the aisle, and he said, Hey, Jerry, you used to go to Sunday school as a boy. Um, say a prayer for us, please. Don't be stupid, Jerry said. The last time I prayed was 20 years ago. But his business companions uh, pleaded, Jerry, it's okay. So Jerry said, All right, I'll pray. So Jerry began, Lord, I haven't bothered you for the last 20 years. But if you get us out of this fix, I promise I won't bother you for another 20 years. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what the scripture talks about when it encourages us to pray. But, you know, today we are focusing on prayer in this series. This is the second in this series of the marks of a, of a great church. And uh, last week we talked about worship and the, uh, the, the resting our authority on God's word. Today we're going to be talking about prayer. And uh, prayer is a wonderful privilege. God has opened the door for each of us to reach out to him anytime, anywhere. He has invited people to come into his presence, share joys, concerns, our requests. And God has promised that when we call out to him, that he will hear us and he will answer according to his will. So the scripture says there are lots of privileges and promises associated with prayer. And uh, again, today we're going to be looking at this a story in the New Testament book of Acts that really highlights uh, a corporate kind of prayer around some special circumstances. And so we're going to take a little different twist on it. I know that many of you have experienced the power of prayer in your own private life. Uh, we've experienced those moments when we reached out to God in a moment in, of need and known that he heard us, know that he answers us. There's just something special about being alone with God in a time of prayer. And the Bible says we should do it. We should do it often. Our text today reminds us also that there's power in getting together as God's people in corporate prayer. Uh, there's a special dynamic that comes into play when God's people come together, united in faith and purpose, and seek the intervention of God in prayer. So we'll get into that a little deeper in just a few moments. Well, let's bow in a moment of prayer ourselves. Gracious God, we come to worship today longing for your kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. We also want to know your will for our lives and for our world. So in this time of worship, enlighten us with your word. Inspire us in the songs that we sing. Enfold us with your love and embrace us with a vision so strong that we will go from this place to share your good news with all people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sun had almost slipped beneath the horizon in the little village of Pukuru in the Darien region of Panama, not far from the border of Colombia. It was January 31st, 1993. As three missionary families prepared to end their day, a group of armed guerrillas entered the village. They seized control of the village square and sent teams into each missionary home. At gunpoint, they captured Mark Rich, Rick Tenenoff, and Dave Mankins. The men were tied up. Their wives were instructed to prepare small packages of clothing for them. And then the guerrillas took the three missionaries with them, disappearing into the night 
on a trail that leads to the Colombian border. They were kidnapped and held hostage, separated from their families, held by guerrillas who viewed them as pawns in a deadly game of political intrigue. In the years after that, the mission sending agency they worked for, New Tribes Mission, received numerous confirmations that the men were still alive. Their wives and children waited in hope that someday they would be released. But after numerous search teams returned with no trace of these three men over a period of years, a judge in Florida declared them officially deceased in 2002, almost 10 years after they had been taken captive. These men's only crime was bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Kuna people in Panama and Colombia. They came in peace, teaching the people to read and write and translating the Bible into the Kuna language. Now, we've seen this kind of thing happen with growing frequency around the world. Today, Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide. Currently, uh, estimates are that over 100,000 Christians a year are being violently killed for their faith, and another 200,000 a year are being denied fundamental human rights or are under assault simply because they are believers in Jesus Christ. And a majority of these are in Muslim-dominated nations. Christians, numerically, are currently suffering more than any other faith group in the world. Christ followers in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors for their faith in Jesus Christ, according to the U.S. Department of State. Some of the countries on that list include North Korea, India, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Nigeria, and China. Many people are asking, where are we as God's people in the American church in crying out for tolerance and justice? Where's the United States government in tackling this issue? In an article by Martin Shapiro in the Huffington Post, he observes, who's going to step up to save these Christians who are now the focus of Islamic extremism in communities they've inhabited for millennia? Do they need to be rescued to another place? That's not their choice. Or can the greater Christian and tolerant world defeat or contain their executioners and provide protection to them in their homes so that they can live in peace? He goes on to say, the world is watching history repeat itself and doing nothing once again with the full knowledge of the devastation being inflicted on their brothers and sisters. Shame on the Christian world for turning its back. So what is the most important thing we can do for Christ followers in the world today who are going through great persecution? Well, the answer that is that all of us can pray. People have been coming to Christ in many of these countries, and that's a major reason why persecution has increased. But recognize that as we pray for God's Spirit to move, the result could be increased acts of violence against believers. As people come to Christ, there will always be resistance. So prayer is always appropriate. Being a Christ follower has never been easy. And whenever the church has advanced into Satan's territory, the evil one has always been ready to fight back. A Regent University study from 20 years ago reported that worldwide more Christians were martyred in 1995 than in the entire first century. 
As I've already mentioned, in recent years, we've seen an even more dramatic upsurge in Christians dying for their faith. And persecution can take many forms. Listen to these words by Chuck Colson. More Christians were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. The list of afflictions includes uh, cruelty, amputations, bombings, crucifixion, flogging, kidnapping, murder, prison, rape, slavery, torture, and more. And just as in the days of the Old Testament book of Daniel, the presence of people who refuse to bow down before state-sanctioned idols sends tyrants into genocidal rage. Now, the most important fact that I can tell you today is that there, this is nothing new. The Bible tells us that uh, this has been happening since the beginning of, of the church, that persecution of Christians has happened since the time of Jesus. The same people who crucified Jesus later began to attack the apostles in Jerusalem in his name. Across the centuries, the price of introducing people to Jesus Christ has always been high. The early church father, uh, Tertullian, once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed, it was the seed of the church, and that is still true today. Well, I want us to look together this morning at a story from the first century church. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23, and it's a powerful prayer that is a model for the church today. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, our prayer, uh, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Now, the background to this text involves a story of a remarkable miracle brought about by God at the hands of Peter and John one day as they went to the temple. There they saw a lame man by the side of the road uh, who had been lame from birth, and in the name of Jesus, Peter healed him. Acts chapter 3 tells us that this lame man was not only healed, but he jumped up and he began walking around and leaping and praising God, and no one could deny what had happened to this crippled man. And when a crowd gathered around them, Peter seized the moment and he began to preach a very powerful message. Word spread to the other Jewish leaders who promptly had Peter and John arrested and thrown into prison. And the next day, Peter made an impassioned defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. 
And his boldness startled them because it was so unexpected. He actually told them that Jesus was the only way to heaven. After conferring with one another, the Jewish leaders realized that a genuine miracle had taken place. Since they couldn't deny what the Lord had done, they ordered Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We cannot stop telling about everything we've seen and heard, they replied. So the authorities threatened them again with more and let them go. Immediately they returned to the disciples and gave a full report. Now let me pause in that story for just a moment and ask you the question, what would you do if the Supreme Court ordered today that you stop talking about Jesus? What if you were threatened with losing your job if you shared your faith with a coworker or made any reference to your faith? What if you were told that you couldn't own a Bible or bring your Bible to work or to school? What if you were ordered not to wear a cross around your neck? And what would you do if you lived in Iraq or Egypt or Syria and word spread that anyone who declared themselves to be Christian would be beheaded or set on fire? That's not so far-fetched, is it? The early believers faced exactly those kinds of questions. What do you do when a hostile world attempts to shut you up? The next few verses tell us what they did, and their response, I think, serves as a model for us. But before I talk about what they did, let me point out what they might have done but did not do. They might have organized a rally to affect public opinion, but they didn't do that. They might have staged a march or a sit-in at the temple. They might have even lit, uh, written letters to the editor of the Jerusalem Times, but they didn't do that. They might have taken an opinion poll to prove that 73% of the people surveyed disapproved of the Sanhedrin's policies. Or they might have tr uh, tried their own campaign of, of intimidation and threats. But these believers did not do any of those things. I find it fascinating and very instruction, instructive that at this crucial moment, the church refused to turn to political power. Not that political power is always wrong, but in this instant, they did not even consider it. What they did in Jerusalem that day was they prayed. More specifically, they got together as a church and they had a prayer meeting. The sequence of Acts chapter 3 and 4 is very important for us to grasp. Let me spell it out. God worked a miracle through Peter and John. Following that, they preached the gospel. Many people began committing their life to Jesus Christ. So the authorities arrested Peter and John and threw them in jail. They were threatened and ordered not to preach. But then they were released. They told the church what happened. The church called a prayer meeting. Notice the pattern that was developed here. Preaching led to persecution, led to prayer. It's a pattern we see throughout church history. The church proclaims the good news. The world begins to persecute Christians, and church must go to prayer. Let me point out a few features of this marvelous prayer. First, it was a united prayer. Verse 24 says, When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. Second, it was a passionate prayer. Evidently, they all prayed out loud at the same time. Perhaps one person prayed the prayer that's recorded here in our text, but they were all repeating it in unison. Third, it was a scriptural prayer. Now, the central portion of this prayer is a quotation from Psalm 2. 
which describes the world's hostility to God. They said, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And by quoting this passage, these Christians were affirming their agreement with God that the people of the world have always hated the people of God. Lloyd Ogilvie points out this quotation also means that God's people have been in trouble since the beginning of time. What happened in Jerusalem was nothing new in any sense. Fourth, this was a believing prayer. Here's the application of Psalm 2 to the current crisis, verses 27 and 28. This is what happened here is very, uh, in this very city for Herod and Apost, uh, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were all united against Jesus, your servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Now let's pause here for a moment to consider this amazing statement. Verse 27 is really just history. This is what happened to Jesus. But verse, tells, verse 28 tells us why it happened. The early Christians understood that behind Herod and behind Pontius Pilate and behind the Jewish leaders stood God himself. They had done evil in crucifying Christ. They had free will to do that. But God already knew the outcome. Now if you say, how can that be? That's a question that only God can answer. But we cannot deny its truth for clearly what the Bible teaches. The early Christians believed that God's hand was at work in their persecution, not just to stop it, but to allow it in the first place. And then finally, this was a specific prayer. They prayed for three things, that God would hear the threats of the Jewish leaders. In other words, they were asking, God, please pay attention to what they're doing to us. Secondly, that God would give them great boldness to preach the gospel in the face of that persecution. And three, that God would send more miracles, which is what attracted the crowds in the first place. Notice that they didn't pray for God to judge the persecutors. There's no hint of vengeance in this prayer. They also did not pray for that persecution to be lifted, to be taken away, even though there's nothing wrong with asking for that. But they asked God for more miracles, more notoriety, and then for more boldness to preach when the persecution resumed. Now, as I think about this prayer, two things stand out to me. First, these believers had an absolute confidence in God. They quoted Psalm 2 back to God because they believed that this particular passage of Scripture applied to their situation. And in essence, they were saying, Lord, the bad guys are at it again. From the day that when Cain killed Abel way back in the book of Genesis, Certain people in the world have always hated the people of God, and they killed us in the beginning, and they're still killing us today. Here we see the importance of knowing the Word of God, not just reading it occasionally, but letting that Word of God sink deeply into our soul because they they knew what God had said in Psalm 2. They were able to interpret that Scripture in their current crisis. And only those who build their lives around Scripture can do that consistently. 
Secondly, these young believers' prayer demonstrates a certain holy stubbornness. They prayed for more boldness, not for less persecution. And in essence, they were asking God for more of what got them in trouble in the first place. They were saying, do it again, Lord, pour it on. Give us the courage, then, to stand firm and the boldness to speak your truth. Now, verse 31 tells us that God answered their prayer in three ways. The place where they were praying together was shaken. It was a sign of God's presence. They were all, not just the leaders, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This was the divine enablement from God to do his will. And then thirdly, they spoke the word of God boldly, meaning they began to preach the gospel to anybody who would listen. If you read on into Acts chapter 5, it begins to tell us what happened as a result. Beginning with verse 12, the apostles performed many miracles. Many people were saved. Crowds gathered around the apostles. The apostles were arrested and thrown in jail again. God set them free one night by a miracle. The apostles resumed their public preaching. The apostles were questioned by the high priest who reminded them of the order not to preach in the name of Jesus. Peter replied, we must obey God rather than men. Peter preached to the Sanhedrin. The apostles were beaten and released again. They left the council rejoicing. They continued preaching the gospel everywhere they went. What can you say about people like that? You just can't stop them. If they were arrested, they preached in prison. If they were let go, they preached on the streets. If they were beaten, they walked away rejoicing. If they were killed, their friends took up the message. No wonder the early church grew so explosively. See, the world can't stop Christ followers who refuse to be intimidated into silence. Let me wrap up this message by offering three important truths. And the first one is this. We are involved in a spiritual battle of cosmic proportions. You know, sometimes I think we forget this truth. That there is a battle for the control of the universe that stretches from the seen to the unseen. Donald Gray Barnhouse called it the invisible war because the greatest battles take place in the realm of the spirit. The early Christians prayed because they knew they were up against forces that were too strong for them. They understood that the Sanhedrin wasn't the real enemy. And I wonder if we really understand that our battle is not with City Hall, it's not with the White House, it's not with the media, it's not with this special interest group or that interest group. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Human rulers are often unwitting pawns in the hands of the evil powers who hate God. We are involved in a spiritual battle of cosmic proportions. Secondly, prayer is our chief weapon when the world turns against us. We can do many things once we've prayed, but we can do nothing until we have prayed. God has given us many weapons to use in this battle of spiritual conflict, but the chief one is prayer. Nothing else matters until and unless we've prayed. We don't pray more because we secretly think we don't, uh, I think we don't pray more because we secretly think that we don't need God. Oh, we would never say it like that. 
but our lack of serious prayer proves the point. We think that we can handle life's problems all on our own, don't we? But let life crash in on us, and what's the first thing that we think of? We fall on our faces in prayer. Let somebody threaten our children, and we'll be praying night and day. We hear stories from other countries, and we think, hey, but we're safe here in DeWitt. But you know what? We're not safe. The whole world is a spiritual battlefield, and every Christian is on the front lines. Here's the third point of application. What happens to us personally doesn't matter nearly as much as what happens to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That and that alone explains why I think some of the families in the Charleston massacre went on television and publicly forgave the person who shot their family members who, was attending, who were attending a prayer meeting one night, and they did it in the name of Jesus. When, when will we learn that our own personal peace and safety is not the central issue? And when will we discover that life isn't the highest value? What difference does it make whether we live 20 or 40 or 70 or 80 years? We're all going to die sometime, sooner or later. And when that happens, the only thing that will ultimately matter is that we used our days for the glory of God and that in some small way, our lives have helped to advance God's cause in the world. You see, it's the gospel that matters. Whether you and I live a long time is a relatively small issue. Now, don't get me wrong, I hope to live a long time. I have no desire to leave this world anytime soon. Long life is a blessing from God, and no one should disdain it. But in the end, all of our days are in God's hands, aren't they? It's what the Scripture says. We've all... All of our days had been ordained from the very beginning. Therefore, we are perfectly free to enjoy each day as a gift from God and to invest our time and our efforts in growing his kingdom, knowing that nothing can happen to us until our time is up and God calls us home. How that happens or when or where just doesn't matter nearly as much as the importance of our advancing the kingdom of God in this world. You know, this week... We will all go about our business and be involved in a lot of different things. But I want to remind you this morning that all that we will be involved in is temporary. What I'm talking about today is ultimate reality, investing our life in that which will outlast and outlive our short stay on planet Earth. Everything else pales in comparison. So prayer is serious business. We must learn to pray as if our lives depended on it, because they do. And we must learn to pray as if our church depended on it, because it does. Let's pray. God, your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Thank you that we can live in your light and we can walk in your truth. May the things that you have revealed to us this day through your word and the thoughts that we have shared live in our hearts and stir us to action. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.